Uh, if you are joining us today, we are in the book of Genesis. Um, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. If you're new to church, new to the Bible, like I don't assume that anyone knows this, um, especially in a culture like Boston, Genesis is uh, the first book in the, the scripture, the Bible, uh, that's re- been recognized for a couple thousand years. And uh, it is the book of beginnings. It's, it's such an important book that if you remove Genesis and the references to what Genesis teaches through the rest of the Bible, we could not even understand why Jesus came. Uh, it is so pivotal as a foundation to understand who God is, who we are as human beings, why we exist in this world, what's wrong with this world. And it sets up that context so that ultimately we can understand who Jesus is and why he came uh, for you and me. Now, the book is divided into two major sections. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is, is sort of a, a section onto its own that's about the, it's described as the generations of mankind, basically, of early uh, mankind. And then around Genesis 12, or at Genesis 12, there's a new transition to uh, a, a focus on one man, Abraham, and his family, his descendants, uh, through the rest of the book. And, and so Genesis 1 through 11 is one section, 12 through 50 is the other section. We're going to finish up Genesis 11 in the next few weeks uh, and then have a break for uh, Christmas or Advent. We'll do an Advent series and then uh, through the end of the year and I think around the second week in January we start back into uh, Genesis at Genesis 12. So just to give you a layout of where we are headed. Now looking back to where we have been, we looked at last week uh, Genesis 5 and, and the early part of verse 6. And I want to set up what we're going to talk about today with verses 5 through 8 of Genesis 6. This is how God looked upon the generations of man at this point. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this is one, verse 5 is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. To, to hear that God, a sovereign God, grieves over his creation, over what had happened. Over, it's, 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 like a, it's like a parent who, because a child is in the image of their parent, right, in, in certain ways. But even more so because God made us and knit us together as human beings. We're made in his image and have gone so astray, so far off, so antithetical to everything that he has taught and he has about his character uh, that it grieved him to his heart that they were um, that it had happened now what was it like to have to be in this uh, context there's not a lot of description about life during this time except for the fact that it, it emphasizes that everyone had evil intentions all the time from their heart, which you know may have been in some situations very explicit, visible of evil, right? People were doing evil to each other. They were hurting each other. But then uh, there's the intentions of evil, which I would describe this way is, is maybe even more sinister. And maybe you, you've, you've met someone like this. You've met someone and at first you're like, hey, they seem like a nice person. They you know, seem okay. But then as you get to know them more and more, you realize, wow, they are really uh, underhanded, there is something at work in them that is dark and evil, like the intentions. They're, they may say nice things, but the intentions of their heart are evil, and it becomes obvious in the way that they live. Now imagine living in a world where everyone is like that all the time. And so it's no wonder God grieved in this moment. 
uh, at what was happening. Today we're looking at uh, the story of Noah's Ark. Now, when you hear that, um, I don't know what comes to mind, but I cannot get past the, uh, the storybook Bible that my parents read me when I was little. With cute little Noah, you know, you can almost think like, like a Fisher-Price Noah, you know. And, uh, and the fuzzy little animals and the cute little ark and the big rainbow and all of that. And you're like, ah, oh, you know, warm, warm thoughts. I do not know how that ever became a children's story, right? Like, hey kids, God wiped out everyone. <laughs> Good night, go to sleep. <laughs> it's like, I, I do not know that, but it, it, it ponders up, or conjures up uh, cute images in my mind. But that is not the story we're going to read today. Today is a gut-wrenching, sad, and weighty story of the utter brokenness of humanity and rebellion against God and the evil that was, had, had come in this world and how a holy and perfect God had to, out of his character, bring justice uh, because justice needed to be served. And yet, what we'll see through this whole story, and, and actually the real point of this story, is not the justice or judgment of God, which we'll see, but is the mercy of God through Noah and his family. So we're going to be taking chapters 6 through 8, um, I, I looked at this and considered reading it, but then counted it out, and it was around nine minutes to ten minutes, and I was like, we're trying to keep it a little short because we got a testimony later and got baptism and had Janie and Hannah and all that. So, um, and I'm, I'm occasionally will go a little bit long. Um, and so I decided not to read all of it today. Um, we're going to look at verse uh, chapter 6. I'm going to summarize some of chapter 7, and then we'll kind of read and briefly comment on 8. Um, but what I want us to see are some themes that are at work here as we go through these chapters. Uh, in chapter 6, we'll see the holiness of God. Chapter 7, we'll see the justice of God enacted because of his holiness. And then chapter 8, the mercy of God. Chapter 6, verse 9, I'm going to pick up with that and encourage you to follow along in your Bible. When I'm uh, done, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and I encourage you to respond with me by saying thanks be to God. Six, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. And pause there. You're like, really? He's going to pause after the first sentence. This is going to take all day. Um, <laughs> I want to pause because the word generations is important. The word generations has shown up a couple of times already. It's shown up as the generations of the heavens and the earth early on. That term is used in, to describe chapters 2 through 4. And then the generations of Adam and Eve begin in chapter 5, verse 1. Specifically, the exact word Generations, And we're going to see this show up throughout the rest of the book, including like Abraham and the generations of Abraham in chapter 12. So I wanted to mention that because these are markers framing out the book. Uh, so Noah, there was a, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish uh, it to a cubit to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which uh, is the breath of life under heaven. 
everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. Now, that's, that's a whole sermon by itself, but that's actually next week. It's called the Noahic Covenant, uh, all of chapter 9. So he's, he's already highlighting something's going to happen, that God's going to have a promised relationship with Noah. He says, when I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, uh, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort in the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind, and of the animals according to their kind, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort... Uh, shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as your food, as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, any questions about anything I just read? Okay, very simple story, very easy to grasp and understand. Um, <laughs> I think a couple of major questions come to mind. One is, is this a real event? Regardless of how you might interpret it, is this a real event that's marked in history? Um, and how does this jive with science, right? Like we are in a very sciencey community, uh, in particular uh, engineering. How can a ship hold a lot of people like that and a bunch of animals uh, for that period of time? Wouldn't it have stunk? Um, where would they have food? Where would they carry water, fresh water? All these kinds of questions. Geology. Is there any evidence in the, uh, of a flood in the Earth's crust? Archaeology. If there was a flood, wouldn't there be evidence in the historical record? Um, these are legitimate questions and good questions. And I would start by simply asking, I think you have to make an initial decision right off the bat. And, and, and everyone, this might not be an easy decision, but I, I get this. Um, and that is, do you believe in the supernatural? Do you believe that anything happens in this world that cannot be explained by simply naturalistic means or mechanisms? Um, if you do believe that, that's a commitment, right? To believe that there is only uh, the natural universe and no supernatural forces or realities that happen. Um, if you do believe in the supernatural, welcome to the club. Um, the Bible kind of believes in it. Jesus believed in it. Uh, if if uh, Christianity is kind of based on it, right? Um, and so, but then the question looking at Noah's Ark then is, is, is this a, a real event, a real story, or is it just some parable that God told? Um, and I, and I want to suggest to you that there's a range of interpretations by faithful Orthodox Christians when it comes to Noah's Ark. None of them are, this is just a parable. There's no reality here. Nothing actually happened. There's no faithful Orthodox Christian scholars that, that, would, that suggest that because the text is written in a way that does not suggest it and the rest of scripture reiterates it as a real event. Now, again, I'm saying there's a whole range of ways to interpret it, um, but I come from the position of it being a, a real event that was um, a real flood and significant there's a range of, of questions about uh, what kind of flood. People, at, people may have argued for it being a local flood, a local flood in a re area or a larger region, or, um, and some argue that it's all of the earth. The there was a global flood. There are those who believe that. And I would suggest to you that the scripture kind of leans that way. There's some 
things uh, that you can interpret. There's ways, the, the Hebrew language, uh, there's a basis for understanding even the way the, the flood hits the mountains. We'll read in chapter 7 and things like that. The ways that it's described, it like came up to the mountains or something like that. But there's, uh, but, but there's, a, um, there's an agreement that something happened. I believe the flood was real and I believe it was significant. I struggle at times whether it was a regional event meant to sort of encapsulate or symbolize humanity or whether it was a global event, but there are reasons I kind of think that it could have been a global event. Let me suggest a few why. I think it was bigger than somebody's backyard pool overflowing, okay? I'm clear about that. I think the evidence suggests it was bigger than that. Um, And so uh, what what can we count on in this text that I think reasons to believe it was real and significant? Well, first, there are many ancient flood narratives. I don't know if you know this, but it's been estimated up to around 200 ancient flood narratives, not from all in the same place. Weirdly, the Mayan people have an ancient flood narrative, a historical flood myth that this massive flood happened. Um, I don't know if you know geology at all, but um, or geography at all, at all, but that's kind of far apart uh, from ancient Mesopotamia to uh, you know uh, northern South America. Um, but other regions did not record a flood. The historical cultures there don't don't have a flood narrative, but there are a lot, and they are spread around. Um, the details of the Genesis account do not line up with any ancient myths that we have. So if you gather all of the ancient myths that we've seen and sort of heard and read, even all the flood narratives, and you stack them up against Genesis, there are some similarities. There's a flood, there's a person, there's things like that. But Genesis is fundamentally different in the, in, uh, the details it provides. When you make up a myth, it turns out you don't provide a lot of details. But there's interesting details about Genesis uh, uh, from the Noah's, um, or from the account here, Noah's age down to the day of his life. The date when it uh, began to flood, the date when they came out, and all the details about the ark that um, not only uh, that, that don't jive with other ancient uh, flood myths. The details of the ark are actually legitimate details. For example, the ark is 300 cubits long, estimated, um, or we know a cubit is roughly 18 inches, so you could say 450 feet long. Uh, it was 70, uh, 50 feet uh, 50 cubits wide, so 75 feet wide, and 30 cubits tall, or 45 feet tall. Um, the, there's, a, there's a museum in northern Kentucky called the Ark Encounter that has built a full-size replica. Uh, regardless of how you feel about it, they believe in a historical global flood. It's fine. I don't, I don't think they're outside the bounds of Christianity in believing that. Um, but I'd actually kind of like to go see it for nothing else than the fact that the Genesis passage describes this uh, as a reality and the crazy thing is, all the other, all of the other flood narratives, they have crazy ships. One ship was a cube, 120 feet by 120 feet by 120 feet. Fill that with people and animals and throw that in the water and see how that does. One was a pyramid. These people were, I'm telling you this is where they were just making up stuff at this point. But the interesting thing about Noah's Ark is that it is the size of a modern small cargo ship. And Shipbuilders. I had a friend who, who talked to a couple of shipbuilders when he was preaching through this, and he said modern shipbuilding still uses the ratios that are described of the ship um, for uh, Noah's Ark. They still loosely use it, and there is no record, no, no archaeological evidence, no historical record of a ship like this being built. The biggest they had was about 170 feet. So 
Either they made up a ship with incredible detail <laughs> that didn't happen, or it was an, a real ship. Uh, geologists have discovered evidence of massive floods in different regions. There are places that there are no, there's no record of a massive flood, but there are regions and areas, including this part of ancient Mesopotamia, that they that human we believe human beings first settled in, developed in, right? Um, and that there is evidence there of a flood. Um, science, and I would I would throw this as a as a, a little. Um, it, the, the, the flood has been doubted for a really long time, right? I mean, I, I actually think science is good in this. Science needs to hold, uh, hold Christians accountable. Science and Christianity are not antithetical to each other. There were many of the great developers of the Western uh, scientific method were believers, were Christians, believed that their call was to study creation, study the world, and learn about it through reflection, through learning as human beings. You go to the Far East, and, and creation was, it wasn't creation, but the world was this sort of mystical reality with spiritual connections. Pantheism had a massive impact, so you didn't want to go digging too far. You might make the universe mad at you. Um, but in the West, we learn from Christianity that God has called us to practice dominion, and part of that dominion is knowledge. I'm going to throw out a very interesting, weird little fact that has been discovered in the last eight years. I read that it started showing up, and I actually saw it again about a month and a half ago, and I was like, oh, I'm going to stick that away. Scientists around 2014 began to discover that there is a massive amount of water deep under the Earth's crust. They think it's around three times the size of all of our oceans. Now, did God use that to flood the world? I don't know. But one of the major objections to the idea of a significant flood is where did all that water come from? Where did it all go? Well, science has now said there's a big, there's a big supply, right? How did that work out? I don't know. How do we interpret it? I don't know. I'm simply suggesting that science is continually learning things, and this new discovery is not antithetical. It actually suggests the possibility of an ancient flood of sorts. And again, Genesis here, Genesis 7 tells us that the flood did not simply come from rain. I know we talk about it, but there's a very important verse in chapter 7, verse 11, that says the fountains of the great deep burst forth. I don't know. I don't think we need to know. So rest at peace. We're not going to settle that today, but I'm simply suggesting that you don't have to throw your brain out the door to believe in, to believe in Noah's Ark, to believe that this is a real account. Yes, you can wrestle with how big it was and the implications of it and global impact of it, but it's a real event, and we're going to treat it that way. And we don't get, want to get lost in the details and miss the point of why God put it in the Bible. He didn't put it in the Bible so that 20, 21st century people could, uh, you know, sit and reflect on, on the science behind it all. Um, how, what's the physics of a flood, you know? Um, but God, God put it in here to reflect, to show his character, to show um, the, the, the goodness of his mercy, um, and, and, to, and to lay the foundation for that is really the holiness of God. The holiness of God is the background for all of this. And we see him beginning to reflect on how humanity had disconnected from who he was in, um, in chapter 6. If you have your um, journal Bibles, in chapter, in chapter 6, verse 12, there's the word corrupt. Uh, verse 13 is the word destroy. And verse 17 is the word destroy. They are all the same Hebrew word. Human beings had become corrupt. 
God said, I will destroy human beings from the earth. I will destroy them with a flood. So think of it this way. Human beings had become violent and destructive in the way that they were living. They were destructive to life on earth. They were destructive to each other. And God would destroy those who were destroying. Sounds a little more kind of equitable, right? Sounds a little more like justice at this point. Um, But why did God have to intervene, right? Why didn't God just go, hey guys, like you're kind of losing it there. Good luck, you need to kind of straighten things out. Um, Why did he intervene? Um, The background, again, is the holiness of God. His utter distinctiveness from all of humanity. The, The word holy at its roots really means to be set apart in its own category. God is his own category. There is no way to describe God in a way that, that, that uh, fits categories of humanity. If, if you'd never seen a, a, uh, a squirrel, but you'd seen a bunny, I could describe a squirrel to you as a bunny with small ears and sort of a longer t- fuzzy tail, and instead of uh, running around on the ground, it climbed trees, right? You could go, oh, I can associate with that. Who do we compare God to? There is no being in the universe like God. God is utterly God, and we are utterly not. All of creation is derivative and contingent on God, and God's holiness is uh, revealed in that, that he is not his creation, but he created uh, this world, and in creation, we as human beings began to reject his rule and began to destroy ourselves and destroy each other. God stepped in because his holiness demands it. Just like if you are watching someone uh, get robbed and it is in your means to stop that, there is something in you that says, I should do that. I should stop that. That is injustice happening. God cannot sit by as injustice continues to roll. Now, he's very patient. If you remember last week, we saw that God said, I will not, uh, my spirit will not uh, dwell in man and you will not live like they had in chapter five. As long, he said, they will only dwell 120 years. So that's kind of a a max range for humanity, meaning God still was patient. God could have begun right then, started, we were going off the rails and he's like, all right, that's it, we're done. But instead, God is patient and he waits and he delays because while he is holy, he is also compassionate. I would argue that most of us have very little sense of feeling of God's holiness. We treat God with, with a, too much familiarity, too much, um, too much uh, like he's our buddy or, or you know, slightly elevated uh, above us. But I would argue the moments when you're staring out at a beautiful starry sky and you kind of feel your soul like in awe, when you're standing in front of a beautiful sunset uh, in the mountains, when you're you're standing on the beach and watching the waves just roll in and crash and you feel small, that is, you're feeling small in front of a a piece of a speck of dust floating in the vast universe that God spun out with the words of his mouth. I would argue any awe that you feel from creation is meant to echo up infinity, to be in awe of who God is. He is not you. He is not me. Yes, we are made in his image, but we and we are like him, but we are not God-like. He is utterly different, utterly holy, and he does not wink at rebellion. He does not wink at our treason against him. 
But his holiness, in his holiness, he, uh, verse 9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. You remember we talked about Enoch last week, walked with God, meaning he walked with life. And, and Noah was righteous, meaning he was living his life. He wasn't perfect, but he was living his life as best he could uh, in light of God, by faith in God, and God counted that to him as righteousness. And so um, Noah believed God and <laughs> built an ark. And think about the, 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 the boldness that this must take. Build, you start building an ark. It's not a quick thing. That's not a, that's not a weekend project. That's not a go down to the Home Depot Grab, grab a truck of supplies. Like that's a long process, especially with ancient tools. But he and his sons begin to build this ark. Do you know how close the nearest port was? Estimated around 400 miles. You want to talk about crazy? You want to talk about how crazy his neighbors thought? But Noah's life was holy. He was set apart by God for a holy God, and he was living in light of that regardless of the rest of the world. And the way the description of what was happening in the world is, remember, they were corrupt. They were destroying themselves and destroying each other. And in the midst of this, Noah's like, I'm going to build a ship, you know? <laughs> and I think he's an example of us, of when you, some of you go into your workplaces and you're like, man, I think I'm the only person here who doesn't like break the ethical codes here. Everybody's like shady. Everybody's sort of trying to, you know, step on other people. Everybody's trying to take credit for other people's work or get that promotion at whatever cost. And I'm just trying to be, uh, trying to be faithful here. Be faithful. Be Noah, right? In the midst of that situation, God is not abandoning you there. If Noah can be faithful in a generation of people like this, you can be faithful in your workplace like this uh, or at your school. So Noah was governed his present life by a future promise that God would be with him uh, and would make a covenant with him. And he lived a holy life to his holy God. The second part we see in chapter 7, uh, just to summarize, is, is the justice of God. This is chapter 7, verse 1, begins with, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So chapter 7 is God bringing the actual flood. He's bringing it down, and um, they went in with the, the animals. There were two of all animals unclean, and then seven of all the clean animals. You're like, why? Um, it's because they would use those clean animals for, uh, for sacrifices after the, the ark was over. Um, but the rain began to come, the floods began to rise, and it continued for 40 days. This is God enacting justice. Now, I, I think we, we have a great moment here. Our culture loves justice. Millennials, Gen Z, that's many of you, love justice, right? We, we cannot sit by while injustice happens. And we see injustice horizontally happening, right? And we see uh, racial, economic injustice. We see, you know, uh, all kinds, socioeconomic injustice, whatever you, you, you call it. You see it happening and something in you cries out to fix that. We get that because God is a just God. Every human being has that. It's interesting, our culture has to borrow Christian framework, Christian categories of good and evil, even though if you ask any of your secular friends who do not believe in, in God or, 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 or have any um, uh, faith in particular in believing in objective reality or the supernatural, ask them where they get this from or why you should believe what they believe, and they'll tell you, well, it's just right. No, I mean, well, that's your feeling. What if I don't feel like it's right? What if I feel like it's wrong? 
Like, we don't want to get to a place, we all would agree, that's not a great place for us to live, right? Where we all just live out our feelings. But Christianity offers an objective framework of right and wrong, justice, injustice. And we get that, I would argue. And all human beings across all cultures have that because we're made in the image of God and God is just. So God could not sit by and see injustice, people destroying each other, people destroying themselves, rebelling against him. So he brought justice because he is holy. Pastor Kevin DeYoung said this, until we understand that sin is an egregious offense against a holy God, the Bible will not make sense to us. The Bible will not make sense to us unless God is unimaginably holy and our sin is breathtakingly offensive to him. Then events like these in the Bible will only leave you, uh, leave you mad at God rather than sin and humanity. If the flood really happened, you say, yes, what the Bible tells us here is true, then it means that there is a God of massive and unrivaled power and majesty. It means that our human sinfulness is worse than we think. It means that God's wrath is justly poured out upon sinners. It means that we ought to call one another to repentance and righteousness. And it, and it means that not all will be saved. In this passage, there's a holy God bringing about his holy justice in this world. And it's interesting when you go back to the other ancient narratives, flood narratives, why did the gods bring floods there? Well, if you read some of them, it's because they saw, um, they, they saw that the earth was getting really filled up and true story, they thought it was getting kind of loud. So they were like cranky old neighbors, I like, need to turn that down. Um, and so they sent a flood because it was getting noisy. Human beings were getting noisy. Um, other gods, they sent the flood and then the flood kind of got out of hand so they had to flee themselves. These are the other flood narratives. Only in this one does God actually reflect on his creation, see the injustice that's there, and then act out of his own character. And even in doing so, provides life. 722 is a summary. It says, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Let me ask you a question. We've seen in Genesis so far, who gave the breath of life? The God who gives the breath of life has the right to take the breath of life. No one else does. That's why we're not to murder each other, right? God has the right over us. He is sovereign. He is holy. He is our creator. And the breath that you just took in before I said those words, and they're, they're taking again now and are taking again in a few moments, is a gift from God. You do not deserve it. I do not deserve it. I have rebelled against God. Even this morning, I've had moments where I was like, that was not a good thought, God. <laughs> and, 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 and yet God has not judged me. He has given me life. This is called common grace that he gives to human beings today. And while he's doing that, he is patient. He's waiting for us to see him for who he is and throw ourselves onto his mercy. And that's what we see in chapter 8 and really through, through the whole section, the mercy of God. Chapter eight emphasizes this, but most commentators note that the whole narrative is not so much about the flood and the judgment as it is about Noah, about God and Noah, that Noah walked with God and God directed him and protected him and made a promise, a covenant with him. He was demonstrating his love and his mercy and his compassion towards those who would turn to him, right? Noah didn't look to God and go, hey, you know what? You and me are buddies. I got this thing, right? 
No, Noah recognized who he was. I am a creature. He is the creator. He tells me what to do. I don't tell him what to do. He tells me to go build an ark. I go build an ark. I wonder how many of us would go build an ark. (laughs) That kind of obedience demonstrates a, a dependence on God, right? A trust in God, walking with God. And in uh, chapter 7, verse 16, I love this little phrase. It says, and the Lord, when it closed the ark, it says, they all went into the ark and the door was closed and the Lord shut him in. Verse 16, it's like God shut that little door on the ark himself. It was God ordaining the ark, if you will. This is my ark. We call it Noah's ark, but we ought ought to call it God's ark, right? Chapter 8, I'm going to read it. Briefly comment, we'll close. Chapter 8, follow along. And God remembered Noah, not that he had forgotten him. Oh, gosh, that flood thing, I'd forgotten. <laughs> I turned the water on, right? Um, <laughs> he remembered Noah is a way of saying God called him to mind, to attention again. All the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of the 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountain of Ararat. Now, we're not sure if that's the modern mountain of Ararat. Ararat, There has been a lot of uh, efforts to go find Noah's ark on that mountain, but we're not even sure geographically if that's actually the same mountain that's described here. So... Um, if you hear that it's been discovered, I'm not sure I would buy that. <laughs> wait, till, wait till it's been verified. Um, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, sent forth a raven, and went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth, so the raven uh, basically went and he could eat, uh, they eat carrion, basically they ate flesh so they could go and find a source of food. So then he sent forth a dove, which doesn't eat meat, it eats eats, uh, bugs and plants. And so uh, a dove from him to see if the bird had, uh, see if the water had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Uh, it's pretty well known that olive, um, olive plants or uh, trees are not uh, easy to kill. Uh, you can actually cut them off, and they'll grow back up. So evidently this one had sprouted and begun to grow again. Um, uh, and the dove came back, let's see, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah went, uh, knew that the water had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore, meaning she was able to go and nest and find food. In the sixth year, uh, 601st year, in the first day of the first day of the month, first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried um, from all, off the earth. Again, that's a, that's a very specific date if you're making up. Uh, a myth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of 
all of flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So there's that language again back of, of Genesis 1 uh, and Genesis 2 where God created human beings and God created animals to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built on the altar of the Lord uh, to the Lord and took some of, the, of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never curse the ground because of man, for the intention of, his, of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is the word of the Lord. So God's mercy comes through. He carried Noah and his family through this. He carried the animals through this. This idea of God, uh, God's judgment, but God not ending humanity and this life in this world. He carried uh, safely through and created uh, a new line, a new line of people, if you will, um, to, to live in righteousness, to follow the Lord, to walk with God as Noah had walked with God. The wooden ark became a vessel of life in the face of wrath. This is a picture of Jesus, that his cross, he is the man, he is the Noah, but instead of taking an ark, he took a cross. And he, instead of uh, simply surviving the wrath of God, he took on the wrath of God on the cross for you and me, that all of those who would believe in him are joined to him as part of a new humanity. That's what Jesus is really doing in this world. If you look uh, in scripture, he is the new Adam, uh, creating, bringing a new, new life. You see, Christ weathered the judgment of God so you and I don't have to. Today, we're gonna to celebrate baptism a little bit later. It's the physical sign. And actually in 1 Peter 3, it's, it's paralleled with Noah's ark. It's a beautiful picture that baptism, a baptism is going through death. It's going through the, 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 the wrath of God and rising and coming out of the water in new life. If you have never made that decision in your life to be baptized, this is the, the initiation right into the family of God, into this new humanity. And so today you're gonna get to see that, you're gonna get to hear, uh, you're gonna get to hear a testimony leading up to that. Um, so I encourage you, if you've never made that step, but you wanna know more about it, you can mark on your connection card. Um, if you are a Christian, you follow Jesus, the, the initiation rite is baptism, but the ongoing rite of the family of God is communion. It is taking the bread and the body, uh, the bread and the, the, the cup as a symbol of the body and the blood of Christ. You see, the, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ on the cross for you and for me. And so we take communion now, remembering, reminding ourselves, just as Noah was physically on an ark, we take the, and Jesus was physically on a cross, you and I physically take communion. So if you're a follower of Jesus, anytime over this next song, you can uh, stand up or you can uh, make your way out to the side door here and outside. We have to take communion outside because there's no food or drink in here. Um, and then make your way in the back. If you're not a, a follower of Jesus or, or you're not sure where you stand with him today, um, this is the one part we'd, we'd ask you not to partake in. Uh, you can walk with those around you. That's totally fine and make your way back around. Or you can uh, stand where you are uh, during uh, while everyone else is making their way. Let's go ahead and stand. I'll pray and let's respond together.
holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Surely today, God, you are holy. You are perfect. You are righteous. You are uncategorized and indescribable. You are beyond us in every conceivable way. And we know, God, that we are dependent creatures made by you in your image, and yet we have rebelled against you in our bid for independence. But thank you that you have carried us through the storm of your wrath. Lord, we will never face it. The worst thing that could ever happen to us has already happened. We have died with Christ. And we live with you now as we take the bread and the cup, the physical reminder of the wrath you endured for us. We take it by faith. We take it with boldness. We take, take it looking to the promise that one day you will return 